listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, March 19th, 2023 edition of Labor Express. I apologize to listeners that I did not have a new episode ready for you guys last Sunday. I was busy attending a a Labor Notes Regional Troublemakers Workshop in Los Angeles. I'll have audio from that event on tonight's program and up on the next couple episodes of Labor Express. On tonight's episode, we'll hear from an old friend of Labor Express, Socket Sony, an immigrant worker organizer originally from Chicago. He later moved to New Orleans, and he's currently the executive director of Resilience Force, an organization representing workers in the resilience economy. Uh, More on what that means later in the program. Sony talks about his new book, The Great Escape, which details the infamous situation in post-Katrina, Mississippi, in which some 500 Indian guest workers were being held in captivity by marine construction firm Signal International. But before that, teachers and school staff in the second biggest school district in the nation, Los Angeles Unified, or LAUSD, could be on strike this coming Tuesday. We'll hear not only about this impending situation, but also about how teachers won their 2019 strike and how they hope to win in their current contract fight. The parallels to the situation with Chicago Public Schools and the Chicago Teachers Union are striking, which is no surprise as uh, UTLA, the United Teachers of Los Angeles, learned important lessons from the CTU, which they utilized in their fight for quality public education in Los Angeles. But first up, we have an international labor news update from our friends at Radio Labor in Canada. In the following episode of Solidarity News, host Mark Belanger talks with General Secretary of Uni Global Union, Christy Hoffman, about making a reduction of the workweek a demand for organized labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. Hello, I'm Mark Belanger. The four-day work week is being promoted by some as a solution to overwork, unemployment, and better life-work balance. But is it achievable or even wanted? That was the question posed to a panel of speakers at the annual conference held in Davos, Switzerland, in January 2023. One of the panelists was Christy Hoffman. Ms. Hoffman is the General Secretary of Uni Global Union. Uni represents 20 million workers employed in the skills and services sectors of 150 countries. She was asked if people are talking about the four-day work week. Nobody's talking about the four-day week. I mean, sort of the big mega word, flexibility is what everybody wants. And less time at work, for some, not all. I think just looking at the range of workers, we represent grocery store workers, for example. They want more hours, usually, yeah, but more important, they want to know when they're working next week. They want to plan their childcare. They want to know when they could take their kids to the doctors. And algorithmic management has come into their lives so that they no longer work every Tuesday and Thursday. It depends what the algorithm predicts, and they often don't know their schedule. So scheduling is really important for low-wage, predominantly women workers in care, in grocery stores, things like that. On the other extreme, we have people who are film producing, you know, and, and like on the sets, and they're expected to work 15 hours a day during the time of production, and they're trying to get an eight-hour break between, between uh, you know, and that's what they almost had a strike over. 
last year. So they want, they're happy to do 15 hour stretches, but like, could they have, you know, at least an eight hour break or a nine and, you know, and, and then you've got, you know, we've got workers producing video games. They have the crunch. They have to work maybe 24 hours a day to meet some deadlines, but they want, and they're like, okay, like, let's fix that. We don't want to work that many hours, but in the, and or IT workers, a little bit less pressure than the ones on the crunch, but they want to be able to take the next week off, you know? So it's about flexibility, but not the one size fits all of a four day week. And I think we do have Amazon workers who work four day week, four, 10 hour days. Now, would they prefer five, eight hour days? No, four days in an Amazon warehouse is you get a three day weekend, but it's really hard to work 10 hours in a row. It's very difficult safety wise. And, you know, it's a physical job. And, it, and so, you know, in the eight hour day was kind of designed around physical work. So it isn't really ideal, but they prefer that. So yes, in that case, a lot of it is like how many hours over four days is another big question. I mean, our Japanese members for them, a 40 hour work week is not even in the realm of possibility. Like they have a campaign to force each other to leave after nine hours a day, but normally they're working 10 and 11 hours a day. And I think that's, I mean, I would say the data that just came out was published last week from the ILO is that 33% of employees in the world, not, not the informal economy work over 48 hours a week as right now. And that number goes up when you go to the United States. And, you know, the United States is the worst in the developed world in terms of, U.S. and Japan are by far the worst. And I know as a lawyer, when I was a practicing lawyer, I worked 50 hours a week and I was a slacker. Like what? Only, you know, really 50? I was like, I'm limiting my, you know, I was always like, I'm gonna be really disciplined about this. But I have a relative, I won't name her, but who's working, she's a, and this is considered a great job. They can, they work between nine and 10 hours a week, a day for nine days and they get the 10th day off. And that's great. You get every other Friday off and that would be sort of in that four day week environment, but you're still working that nine, 10 hour day. And, and I think I, I just want to close. I, I have a lot to say about this, but I do think negotiating with workers is really important. That's the key. You know, it's not just about deciding, you know, we believe the unions have a big role in that and it has to be attached to dignity. And of course, rather work four days than five, no question, but but for some who are already working 60 hours, do they, you know, what does that mean in terms of the number of hours? You know, it's a real whole cultural approach to how much you have to actually work. And, and part of that I would throw in is vacation time because, you know, in the U.S., you got, you have no right to paid vacation and it depends on the company what they allow. And in the, in Europe, it's, you mostly start with four weeks, even as a new employee. And that is also about time off from work. And I think that we, you know, when you, you have to consider that and some people would rather have a five day work week and have six weeks off, you know, and, and that's another where I work, you get a fair amount of time off, but it's not organized as a four-day work week. So I think there's so many variations to this theme. Of course, I love to work a four-day week. I'd love to work a five-day week. Um, you know, and in my, you know, I think that it's really what's the starting point. And there's so much difference. There's such a big range, and we have to think about those 22% of the world's workers who aren't working a full-time job. And that again, that does not include the um, that does not include the informal economy where those workers are just they don't know from one week to another 
the next what they're going to work. So there's just such a, a huge amount of range, and we just need to have some negotiation over this. And this is a big, big demand for our unions, big demand for workers. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. Thank you to Solidarity News, produced by Radio Labor in Canada, for allowing us to broadcast their segments here regularly on Labor Express. For more on Radio Labor, see their website at radiolabor.net. Before moving on, I just want to uh, comment that in many ways the comments there of uh, Christy Hoffman were disheartening. First off, there's the sober reality that for uh, most workers around the world, including here in the U.S., even the 40-hour work week is a distant dream. And add to that the complexity of contemporary work life and work cultures around the globe, and you realize that the old-fashioned simple demand of the eight-hour day is much less applicable to today's workforce. That should not, however, distract us from the fact that a demand and the reduction of hours of labor for the same pay absolutely needs to be a central demand of organized labor in the 21st century as it was in the 19th and the early 20th century. Uh, The French workers who are fighting currently the rise in the retirement age in France should be an inspiration to us all. Um, And over the next year, I recommit to featuring stories about fights on the uh, issue of reduction of the working day and the working week and so on here on Labor Express. So uh, definitely keep tuning in for that. As I mentioned at the top of tonight's program, I had the opportunity to attend one of the Labor Notes Regional Troublemakers Workshops, this one in Los Angeles last weekend. Uh, you know, they have the uh, the annual conferences every couple of years, but in between they have these regional workshops, and I was able to attend the Los Angeles one just last weekend. I'll bring you selections of audio from that event tonight and on the next couple episodes here of Labor Express. In just a few minutes, we'll hear from a member of the United Teachers of Los Angeles, UTLA, about their contract negotiations and the possibility of a strike, which could launch as early as this coming Tuesday. But first, one bit of excitement at the conference came from a member of the UAW who was invited to give a brief announcement. This was uh, as the results of the runoff election for UAW top leadership began to come in, and it looked increasingly likely that there would be a victory to the reform slate. In the weeks since, that situation is not 100% resolved. Uh, There's actually an attempted challenge going on by the, the old guard, but it's pretty much a near certainty that the reform forces have taken over control of the UAW for the first time in 70 years. Along with the uh, election of a reform slate and the Teamsters, we now have a situation in which two of the nation's largest and most powerful unions are being led by people who have committed themselves to a working class fight back and an end to the corrupt collaborationist approach of these unions, which had weakened the workers, uh, the workers movement for decades. Uh, both also have major contract negotiations brewing with some of the country's largest and most influential corporations, uh, UPS with the Teamsters and the big three automakers with the UAW. So 2023 is shaping up to be a showdown year for the uh, U.S. working class with corporate America. Here is that uh, UAW member making that announcement at uh, the conference last weekend. Who here heard about the earthquake that has just happened in the UAW? Woo! After 70 years of a single caucus controlling every single position in the top leadership of the UAW, workers across the auto sector, across the aerospace sector, across the higher ed sector, many of us in California, organized for years to win the right to vote. We won the right to vote, one member, one vote, for our top leadership a year and a half ago. And now we just had our first elections. UAWD, Unite All Workers for Democracy, the caucus pushing for a democratic, and militant union won every single seat we ran for, including 
It hasn't yet been declared, but it is all but certain that we have won the presidency and a majority share of leadership of the United Auto Workers Union. So, thank you Labor Note, thank you TDU, UTLA for these inspirational examples. Let's carry this forward to other unions. Look out for us this year, the big three automakers. Our contracts are up in the UAW, could be going on strike in uh, September. So we'll hope to see you on some of the GM picket lines out here if they happen in SoCal. And uh, let's take this movement on the road and build a fighting labor movement from higher ed to electric vehicles to every corner of the labor movement. Thank you, Labor Notes. We will certainly be following these developments with the OW close here on Labor Express. Well, by this coming Tuesday, teachers and staff in the nation's second largest school district, Los Angeles Unified, could be on strike. If it happens, it'll only be a three-day strike initiated by Local 99 of the Service Employees International Union, which represents some 30,000 school staff, including bus drivers, uh, teachers' aides, special education assistants, custodians, cafeteria workers, etc. The UTLA, the teachers' union, will honor the strike and refuse to cross SIU's picket lines, meaning that the school system as a whole will shut down. This could be a prelude for an even bigger struggle coming up as uh, the teachers are currently in negotiations with the school board. And it is an important demonstration of solidarity by school employees, teachers, and staff. The staff represented by SEIU are some of the most exploited workers in the field of education, or in any field really. An average wage for the workforce is about $20,000 a year, uh, well below the poverty wage for a city in which rents make uh, it difficult for almost anyone to survive these days. UTLA organized a successful strike back in 2019, which we covered here on Labor Express. Directly inspired by the Chicago Teachers Union, UTLA successfully took on the school privatization agenda and won the first ever cap on class sizes in Los Angeles. At the Labor Notes Struggle Makers Workshop held in Los Angeles last weekend, UTLA Secretary Treasurer Arlene Anoe spoke about the strike and about how UTLA organized to ensure its success. She also spoke about how they're organizing in the current contract fight and what demands they're putting forth to the school board. You will hear here many of the echoes of the strategy and tactics employed by the CTU here in Chicago, including an expanded bargaining team to encourage greater democracy and participation by teachers and staff, and organizing alliances with the broader community. How many of you were here and joined our UTLA strike in 2019? Let me see your hands, LA. All right, all right. Well, your solidarity made it the largest strike in our city, and it had a ripple effect across the nation. But what you may not be aware of, of all the things that led us to that strike, what we had to do to build for that strike, to get 60,000 members, parents, community, and students on the street. And I want to share with you about some of those things that, that we did to prepare for the strike, and where we are today, and what we, where we're going. So as the second largest teachers local in the country, we have 35,000 members from pre-kindergarten to, to uh, 12th grade. We have adult educators. We have substitutes. We have health and human service professionals. We transformed our union by building the systems and infrastructure for organizing. We started by electing militant officers and leaders of our union who were able to change the climate by hiring staff for organizing and really clarifying roles and expectations. 
Again, it took five years. We needed to get representation, so that means a chapter chair at each of our schools. We have over a thousand schools. That was our goal. And also chapter action teams, so we have small communication structures. And we needed to engage and bring in new members, like our younger teachers and women. We're 76% of our union, right? And women are always the backbone of our unions. As a progressive union in a school district with 90% students of color and 87% low income, we lifted up racial and social justice as a major focus. And we humbly went to our community organizations, our allies, and we admitted and said, we have not always been a good partner. We have used you and we want to start a new relationship. So from that moment was the beginning, the seeds of Reclaim Our Schools Los Angeles and a new relationship with our parents and our community and our students. And that's been very, very important to this day. And this was the beginning of a growing coalition and as a school district facing the most independent charter schools in the nation, we took on the fight against the privatization of schools. And we know that public education, there's billions of dollars, and they know that we shape the minds and hearts of our students, right? The future of this country. So you better believe we're under attack. And all of this work led to our strike and the organizing we did, one-to-one -one organizing. And let me tell you a little bit about what that meant. It meant addressing FUD. Do you guys know what FUD is? F-U-D, FUD. We hadn't had a strike in 30 years, so we had a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It was not easy, right? It's never easy to strike. So we had to have those one-on-one -on -one conversations, find out what the fear was, find out how to redirect that fear, and get our members on board. And that they, and we did that also by escalating actions, right? From low risk to higher risk. So our fight today is the Beyond Recovery 2022 to 25 contract campaign. We call it Beyond Recovery because even before the global pandemic, our schools have been under-resourced, understaffed, with poor working conditions, and not, we didn't have a thriving public education system that we need. So now, we're in a crisis. We started our Beyond Recovery platform by going to schools and asking our members, what a concept, right? Listening sessions, what do you want to see in our contract? And they told us. And then we put together a platform called Beyond Recovery, and our members voted on it by 97%. They voted to endorse the Beyond Recovery platform. So then we 
took this platform and we made it into contract proposals. And by the way, we built an expanded bargaining team. Now during the strike, we had 15 member bargaining team and after the strike, during the pandemic, we were bargaining round the clock. We got the golden standard in health and safety during the pandemic and we, got, we won a lot during our strike. Not everything, but we won a lot. But we had a very effective team that was experienced, that was committed, and we trusted each other. We had each other's backs, as Courtney said. So the question is, why would we change that, right? We had a really strong team. Well, I'll tell you why we changed that. We changed our structure so that members in the leadership of our whole district of, of UTLA, the steering committees in our eight areas that we divide our city in, they could be on the bargaining team if they agreed to the protocols. So in other words, we opened it up to 100 members. We got 85 to sign up. And, um, and let me tell you, it's been an amazing experience. Um, these rank and file members who represent all the areas of our city, they have really engaged and they've pushed us to be more democratic. We were more transparent now. We have more member and community voices and we keep evolving. That's what a union has to do is keep growing from wherever you are to keep moving forward. To, in those principles. I gotta tell you, I was nervous, and I told them, I'm nervous. I'm not sure how to manage a table of 85 people. But you know what? I told them we're gonna learn together. And we did learn together. We came together in trust, and I learned that you trust the people, and you trust the process. That's how you grow a democratic union. You trust the people and you trust the process. And let me tell you, members have been inspired by each other to embrace our broader demands. And they're learning from those of us at the table how to frame the issues and how to present the rationale to their own members at the school sites. So they're going back to the schools now and they share what happens at the bargaining table. They're our organizing committee. They're the ones to agitate, to take it to the schools, and now to prepare our members for the next step. So we built power. And I could say without question that the expanded bargaining team has made us stronger, more invested and accountable to our contract and to our organizing. So, you gotta keep pushing. You gotta keep pushing. So over these months, I just gotta tell you, LAUSD has not sufficiently responded to any of our demands. And by the way, they have a $4.9 billion reserve. They have twice as much money as when we were on strike in 2019, when they told us it was not enough money. So we've got this huge reserve, and that's money that we, these are some of our key demands. We have a very comprehensive package affecting every single student and every single member. 
but some of the key demands is one, lowering class size. I say that because LA has had the highest class sizes in the nation. In 2019, we were, getting, we were able to get a first time cap. So from that, we want to lower class sizes by two students in every grade, two students. We have had over 50 students in our high schools and over 30 students in our elementary. Two class, two grades, uh, two students in every grade, number one. Number two, we are unequivocally asking for a raise. Yeah. A big raise, but a reasonable raise. 20% in two years, 20% in two years. We're done with teachers having to be apologetic, taking work home, calling parents in the middle of the night. 66% of our members can't afford to live in the city that we work in. 66%. And 28% of our members have a second or third job just to survive. We have a problem in LAUSD of attracting and retaining educators. We are unsustainable and we're telling the district to fix it. Number three. Number three is our vision for what our schools can be. We're not imagining something. We know what works because we got it into the contract on a side letter in 2019, and that's community schools. Have you heard of community schools? This is making our schools the neighborhood hub and investing with resources and staffing according to what the community wants. It's listening to this community and then giving them a voice in local school decision making. So that's what, this, what we've been calling for as, as well as a black student achievement program, which our students, our black and brown students have asked for. And this is moving money from the policing into counselors, restorative justice, resources. And by the way, we started this this past year and 87% of the students in 100 schools say that it's working and it's helping them. We just need more resources to go. Um, we also have special education demands and also housing. We have unused buildings in the district that we want them to use for our students and families clean water, a climate justice curriculum, green space on campus, an immigrant defense fund, and dream centers. I could go on and on, but that's what we're fighting for. And our Beyond Recovery is not only historic for what's in it, but the fact that we are joining together with SEIU Local 99 in addressing our demands with the school district. Now, I know that uh, Sunday Jackson couldn't be here, so I'm just going to say one, a couple of things about the SEIU Local 99. These are our siblings, our brothers and sisters, who are the cafeteria workers, who are the teacher's assistants, who are the bus drivers, and who work together with us, the custodians, to make our schools work, right? And they are among the lowest paid workers in LA Unified. Their average salary is $20,000, $20,000. 
below the poverty line, and many don't even have enough hours for health care. 24% of SEIU members say they don't have enough to eat, and one out of three say they have been homeless or on the verge of going homeless in LAUSD. So we understand, our members understand, we've got it bad, but SEIU Local 99 has it worse. So if they go on strike, and we anticipate they will, on a, a UPC three-day strike, our members have pledged to not cross the picket line and join them. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. We need to make a station ID break, but when we return, immigrant worker organizer Sackett Sony discusses his new book, The Great Escape. It's powerful stuff, so make sure you don't turn that dial. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. If you've been listening to this program for many years, you no doubt might remember Socket Sony. We first had Mr. Sony on the program back in 2005. At the time, Socket, like myself, had traveled to New Orleans to investigate the conditions facing workers post-Hurricane Katrina. Socket decided to stay in New Orleans to organize among the hyper-exploited immigrant working class that was drawn into the city as part of the rebuilding effort. Unfortunately, very few of our programs from that period survive. In those days, I prioritized our live on-air presence and uh, did not really focus on our podcast presence. It was more of an afterthought. So uh, not a lot of those episodes are actually available anymore, unfortunately. But one of the episodes that does survive from that period is a May 19th, 2008 program in which Socket speaks at that year's Labor Notes Conference about the hundreds of Indian guest workers who were recruited to work for marine construction firm Signal International under false pretenses. After paying thousands of dollars to the recruiters for their jobs, these guest workers found themselves in a form of debt peonage under guard, literally under guard, in a work camp with truly horrific conditions, largely lacking any legal protections. At the time, I described it as one of the worst examples I had seen of a hyper-exploited immigrant workforce. And indeed, it really does, to this day, remain one of the worst cases that I remember ever reporting on. The whole situation in post-Katrina New Orleans or the the Gulf Coast was unbelievably exploitative. And there were so many stories that uh, still haunt me from those days. With the help of uh, Sackett, these workers eventually were able to organize an escape, and they later organized a march to the Indian Embassy in Washington, D.C. to draw attention to their plight. Sackett has continued to organize immigrant workers and workers involved in the resilience economy, which is a growing sector of the economy employing people in disaster recovery, especially in the face of the increased number of disasters as a result of climate change. He now resides in D.C. and is the executive director of Resilience Workforce, a resilience economy worker advocacy organization. Sackett just published a book on that experience with the Indian guest workers in post-Katrina, Mississippi, and he spoke about the book to members of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Here is that interview. Here's our interview with Sakit Sani. I talked with him yesterday at the weekly meeting of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. So you'll be hearing questions from some of my network colleagues. Sakit Sani is the founder and director of Resilience Force. That's the national voice of the resilience workforce, which is the folks whose labor helps us to prepare for and repair after Uh, climate disasters. He's been hailed as an architect of the next labor movement. He's the author of the fabulous new book, The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. 
And you start uh, by telling us uh, how did 500 skilled Indian workers wind up in a Mississippi labor camp? Yes, that's what I was wondering the night I got the mysterious midnight phone call um, that set me on their trail. I was a labor organizer in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Um, and, um, you know, I was running a small nonprofit protecting the workers who were doing the rebuilding. Um, the post-Katrina flooding had turned New Orleans and the Gulf Coast into the world's largest construction site. And the repairs were being carried out by largely immigrant workers. Um, there were a million homes to be rebuilt in Louisiana, uh, a million more in Mississippi. So this was a rebuilding of post-war proportions. And the rebuilders uh, had come from Latin America and all over the United States. Um, and they would, um, every morning, uh, my day would start under this 60-foot tall statue of Robert E. Lee. Um, and that's what was the, the hub of hiring for all these black and brown workers in, you know, in the Gulf Coast. Contractors would come in with buses. I'd clamber onto buses and follow the workers to protect them. So that's what I was doing when I got this mysterious phone call from an Indian man who just arrived and who told me that he wanted to set up a secret meeting with me to tell me about uh, his labor issues. Um, it turned out he was one of 500 men brought in by an oil rig builder and its recruiters and kept in forced labor in labor camps on company property. Um, recruiters went to India and promised people an American dream. They promised them green cards and good jobs um, and the chance to bring their families over. Well, it turned out there were never any green cards. The men were sold an American dream. The catch was they would have to pay $20,000 a piece. This was, you know, $300,000 a piece in American money in purchasing power. Workers arrived and realized no green cards. Um, they were working round the clock shifts behind a barbed wire fence, living on company property, 24 to a trailer in a labor camp. And they were being forced to pay $1,000 a month for the rent for living in this labor camp. So, um, you know, I was on their trail. I found them uh, and we engineered together the great escape at the center of the book. Tell us, uh, Saket, a little bit more about um, something that I didn't really know, or at least know under this name, uh, the resilience workforce. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what I didn't know at the time when I met these Indian workers was that um, they were the first among um, a growing uh, what became a growing uh, workforce in America. You know, if you remember, Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath was the first thing that most of us uh, understood and interpreted as a climate disaster. But since then, there have been many. Um, Post-Katrina flooding was supposed to be a once-in-a-hundred-year event, a hundred-year flood. But since Katrina, there have been over $200 billion disasters. And each time there's a disaster, whether fire, flood, or hurricane, immigrant workers have come together to rebuild and repair. We call this the rising resilience workforce. Um, like the auto workers of another era, uh, they are um, uh, the protagonists of a new rising industry that's coming together because of climate change. And um, 
and my organization, Resilience Force, follows these workers as they follow storms to protect them. So what we're doing is building recognition for these workers as a formal skilled workforce. Um, we're protecting them, but we're also trying to create millions of jobs in the climate economy to rebuild and repair. The special thing, though, that happens with these workers is these are often immigrants who arrive into areas where before the disaster, immigrants were not welcome. Well, after the disaster, homeowners and, and, and city officials suddenly have a much bigger problem on their hands than wanting to keep immigrants out. They need these immigrant workers. So we take that opportunity to build new friendships and new social cohesion where it didn't exist before between immigrants and non-immigrants. Uh, let's just sort of rewind a bit, Socket. You came to the U.S. Uh, from India, northern India, I believe, to study playwriting at the University of Chicago. Uh, there are lots of uh, interesting and unusual routes to labor organizing, but I'm not so sure that that I know that one. How did how did you wound up being a, a labor organizer in New Orleans? Yeah, you know, I um, I came to the U.S. on a scholarship uh, to study theater, uh, and 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 that made my parents um, the first parents in the history of India who let their son come to America to study theater. Uh, I got a theater degree and I, uh, I, I, I was running a theater company uh, in Chicago, which is a great theater town uh, for those of you who know it. Um, and, um, and that's what I was doing when I missed an immigration deadline and, um, and lost my immigration status. And I thought nothing of it. I was just you know busy directing the next play. Um, but then 9-11 happened. And like a lot of immigrants, I lost my foothold in normal American life. Uh, um, and I became a low-wage worker. That's what turned me from theater to organizing. But my real education as an organizer didn't come until I went to volunteer in New Orleans. I intended to go for 10 days. I ended up staying 16 years. And I'm still organizing workers in post-disaster uh, efforts. Uh, New Orleans from everybody. I've been there, but uh, it's a hard place to leave, isn't it? It is such a hard place to leave. I never really left. I still split time between D.C. and, and New Orleans. I'm I'm only a I'm only a, a resident of, of Washington, but I'm a citizen of New Orleans. <laughs> so, so, so true of so many of us in D.C., my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Let's go uh, across the country to uh, the other Washington, which considers us the other Washington. Uh, Harold Phillips. Uh, go ahead, Harold. Well, the first question I have to ask as an Actors' Equity member, uh, you're still writing? Oh, what a great question. I, I, I dream of going back to playwriting, but I used a lot of my theater education to write this book. You know, the, I wanted to write this book as uh, a thriller, a detective story. Mm -hmm. um, the, the rule, the ironclad rule was to make everything scenic. Um, and to make the plot move forward through conflict and tension, um, just like a good campaign. You know, many of the storytelling you, rules we use to organize um, are also used in, in this book, with one exception, which is in a campaign, you don't really deeply get the interiority of people. I wanted to write a book where you get to know these immigrants and even their opponents, the, the, the traffickers, the recruiters. You get to know them as deeply as you get to know people in your life. You know, um, the title of the book is The Great Escape. And at the center of the book is this extraordinary uh, stealth feat 
of uh, ferrying 500 brown men out of a labor camp uh, in the Gulf Coast. Uh, and even that is just like so much like a play or a, or a, or a cinematic, a good, great heist film, the way it played out. I don't want to give anything away, uh, but, but it involved uh, wild turkey whiskey and flavored cigars as bribes to security guards uh, and an elaborate fictional Indian wedding as the pretext to ferry 500 men out of a labor camp. Well, I'm glad that you uh, that you mentioned the other factor that that you uh, <clears throat> brought up in, in that last response, which is the people who were acting as the agents. Uh, far be it for me to call them traffickers, but um, I wonder. You mentioned that a lot of immigrants are volunteering their time as part of this re- resilience workforce. How common is this sort of dynamic where recruiters are going out to their countries and making promises and bringing them over only to find that, as you said, the American dream has been sold to them? Well, uh, I think of uh, there's two answers to that. On one hand, what I describe in this book is rather than being an exception, it's sort of the the furthest extreme example of the rule. Um, Many, many times migrant workers uh, come in to do seasonal work in farms or one-time work, Um, you know, um, living in in Washington, Harold, you're familiar with the way workers come through the so-called body shops to work in the tech sector, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, whether high-tech or low-tech, these are labor contractors. And labor contractors can be down the street in your neighborhood, but they can also be global. And that's what we're experiencing is the globalization of this labor contracting um, system. On the other hand, what is exceptional about the story in this book, and that's why it's bookworthy, is just that there's 500 workers, not 10 or 12. And they arrive to work for an oil rig builder owned by a private equity company with investors. You know, that is extraordinary. And it makes it a David versus Goliath story that was worthy of a book treatment. Let's, uh, let's go to Judy and Sel in, in uh, Kansas City, uh, host of, of one of our oldest labor radio shows in the country, the Heartland Labor Forum. Judy? Hi, thanks, Chris. Hi, Socket. Uh, good to see you again. Judy, I've known you for, for years and years, and I'm so happy to connect with you. Yeah, well, we want to have you on your show. But I just wanted to say, I first became aware of the struggle with the... Uh, so-called H-2B Indian workers uh, when I was in D.C. for a conference and I walked by DuPont Circle and there were a bunch of these guys camped out there. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember you walked by during the hunger strike that's described in the book. Right, right. And I said, who the heck are these guys? And I started talking to them and I got a great show out of it. So, uh, Uh, I think they hadn't eaten in 14 days, but nobody could believe it. Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing right in the middle of D.C. And, you know, their attempts to get the attention of the government were like long and um, frustrating. I remember that. But I want to ask you something else. Um, One of the things you didn't mention is that when you went to New Orleans, you founded the New Orleans Center for Worker Justice. And one of the things that really impressed me about that was that you worked with both black and Latino workers 
to try to overcome the mutual distrust and even hate uh, that they had for uh, because they were in competition for jobs. Could you just talk about how you did that? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that question. You know, um, particularly in New Orleans, but in other places in the Gulf Coast as well, um, you know, before Katrina, there was a vibrant labor movement, right? And a strong, in many cases, a strong middle class. Um, you know, New Orleans was a union town. Um, teachers struck three times in 10 years in New Orleans before uh, Katrina made landfall and the city flooded. So um, here's a town that's got a vibrant labor movement. And then it, you know, and then um, the city is flooded. And um, you really had, as a result, the decimation of unions and uh, rollbacks um, in terms of worker power. You know, a lot of the way that played out was overnight jobs that were $14, $15 an hour turned into subcontracted jobs for $6 an hour in hotels and other places. Um, and part of the strategy was to bring in immigrants, um, you know, and pay them less through subcontractors. So uh, my job wasn't just protecting workers, but building racial solidarity across the black and brown divide, um, you know, building points of connection between black workers and immigrant workers. A lot of it was explaining and educating the immigrant workers on the history they were stepping into, but also helping black workers understand that, that these people were not coming to replace them. You know, they were being brought in to, to, to build a whole new phase of the labor market. And that was easier said than done. I remember uh, conversations that I facilitated between immigrant workers and African-American workers, uh, welders in particular, and uh, immigrant welders would say, all I want is to stay here and get citizenship. I just want papers, you know, that, that's what I need here. And black workers from the South would say, well, we got our papers and look how, how that turned out for us. Papers aren't enough, you know? So there was these really rich, extraordinary conversations one of the things that happens in my book um, that I describe is a lot of the African-American organizers who were my mentors became mentors to the men in the book. And um, these are men from India who had deep faith in American institutions. They thought all they had to do was raise their hands and the Department of Justice would come to their rescue. And it took a generation of African-American organizers to tell them, no, that's not it's not that simple. You know, um, you, you actually have to understand your opposition. Uh, so there's a lot of African-American organizers who make appearances in this book um, at key moments to move the story and to move the struggle forward. Now, in the book, you, you as one would expect, go deep into the lives of the workers. As you mentioned, it's very dramatic. Um, but you also got people like a camp guard and there's this corrupt ICE agent who really is at the center of the story. And you got them to talk to you as well. I'm, I'm really curious about how that came to be. Yeah, that took a lot of hunting and a lot of digging. You know, um, what we didn't know um, when we started our march to Washington um, from the labor camps, the men escaped from the labor camps, um, filed a criminal complaint with the Department of Justice. But when the DOJ didn't respond, we decided to march from New Orleans to Washington. Um, 
what we didn't know was that deep inside the federal government, there were corrupt agents with their own corrupt ties to the company and their own nefarious intentions. And they were unraveling the DOJ investigation. Um, years later, I pieced this together while writing the book. And I went looking for the Department of Justice officials and the ICE agents and the recruiters and camp guards because I wanted to create a 360 degree view. You know, um, I wanted to not just understand the worker perspective, but understand how in the 21st century, a set of incentives and motivations and justifications can come together, you know, um, for people who think of themselves as idealists. I mean, the, the attorney at the center of the story who presented and sold the trafficking scheme to the oil rig company thought of himself as the immigrant's best friend, a friend to immigrants. How did he get to the point where he was a participant in this scheme? Most miraculous was the fact that I found this immigration agent, this ICE agent, and wind up, wound up going and um, uh, talking to him. Uh, and, and, and that conversation is in the book. I don't want to give anything away, but it was one of one of the most extraordinary encounters in my life. I came to lay blame at his feet, um, but, I, but, I, but I found a very different result um, at the end of the book, and I, and I talk about that. Here's a, another thing that I'm wondering about, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, from the Bracero program, quote unquote, guest worker programs, have almost entirely been failures and worse, much, much worse. And, yes, and it's, yes, it's, exactly. Explain to me how these things are still around, how some of them are legal. And then um, I think, you know, recently there seemed to be popping up again. The, the Bracero program, which was the precedent, you know, one precedent of the current guest worker programs, was shut down as a national disgrace. You're completely right, Chris. I mean, that was an importation of over a million Mexican laborers who were made promises of pensions that weren't never kept their bodies broke down at that work right um before that after the abolition of slavery there was an entire debt peonage system that was tied to convict labor and the growth of of jim crow and incarceration i think that there's a policy answer to what you're saying but the deeper answer i think is that there's a there's a national um there's a cyclical national forgetting Hmm. of of the ways that every generation has made mistakes. And uh, that allows um, large companies to continue to push these programs under new names, you know, and profit from them. Yeah. And you're right, you know, with the kinds of um, infrastructure development we're seeing in the U.S. and the kinds of labor shortages that are already getting talked about, you know, either there'll be a movement for justice so that people can get good jobs and that immigrants and U.S.-born people can get the same wage rates, you know. So either there will be a solidarity economy that we fight for, uh, or we'll see this all over again in higher numbers. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, Steve Zeltzer out in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think this issue of uh, immigration is uh, uh, an issue of capitalism, basically. The capitalists want workers uh, as cheap labor. And the Democrats and Republicans, you look at this USMCA, uh, which in, in, you know basically uh, embedded uh, the NAFTA as a policy that allows export of capital from the United States to Mexico and, and 
the United States has recolonized Mexico. At the same time, prevents Mexicans and other workers from coming to the United States. So, and both the Democrats and Republicans support that. So it's nothing new. And I think these immigration bills are to reestablish um, cheap labor or what they call guest laborers again. Um, so it's it's the nature of, of capitalism. And I think that uh, what is happening now in, in Mexico, and this is important, is that uh, the United States wants to restructure the Mexican labor program to like the NLRB, which is an anti-labor organization, so that U.S. corporations can operate in Mexico uh, with the same structure they have here. Saka, do you want to respond to that? Uh, you know, there's a a a, a Swiss um, journalist um, who was talking about European guest worker programs, uh, and he said once, um, in a self-critical way, he said, um, "We wanted workers, but we got human beings." <laughs> You know, expressing the dilemma, you know, but in a in a self-critical and facetious way. Um, I, I think that um, what what I and I think all of us here want to see is that if people build this country, they have a place that's permanent in it if they so choose. That people who build the United States deserve to belong um, and have the same rights, and you know that's that's our uh, that. That's all of our uh, aspiration, you know, and I, I know that many of you on this call have been working for years and years to make that a reality. And so thank you so much to all of you for being, you know, fellow travelers, um, you know, um, and I think it helps to know that none of us are alone in, in this in this long journey. One, one final uh, question for you before you catch your plane, Saket. Uh, you, you say that quote, despite the human trafficking story in a labor camp in Mississippi, there was so much audacious joy that shaped these men, unquote. And I would just love for you to to share. I, I was not expecting to find joy in this story. Yeah, well, um, I wasn't expecting to find joy uh, when I met these men. You know, I, I was someone who was um, estranged from India, uh, really, really kind of cut off from my Indian roots, uh, living in New Orleans. And I barely called my mother. And the last thing I expect, the last people I expected to be at the center of my life were 500 men from India. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but they introduced me to so much joy. And one of the ways they did it was by teaching me to cook. The book is full of mouthwatering meals that move the story forward, uh, even a recipe. So, so if you, if you like uh, Indian food at all, this book is absolutely for you. Saket Sony is the founder and director of Resilience Force. He's the author of the fabulous new book, The Great Escape, A True Story of Forced Labor and Immigrant Dreams in America. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. You'll find out more about Saket Sony's new book, The Great Escape, at a link up at laborexpress.org. There's a link to the May 19th, 2008 episode of Labor Express featuring a much younger Saket Sony available there as well. If you want to hear more about the situation of the Indian guest workers held in captivity by Signal International, uh, definitely check that out. 
Labor Express is a nonprofit 51c3 member of IBW Local 1220. The views expressed on Labor Express are those of producers, not necessarily of IBW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. Express. <laughs> 